0: Genesis chapter 3, and we'll just read for the moment again the first five verses, Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Amen. Thus far we read the word of God. Verse 5 says, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Our theme this morning is the gospel as a contradiction of pride the gospel as a contradiction of pride a biblical view of sin is essential to a biblical view of the gospel the very term sin of course is unpopular in our present day but sin is the transgression of the law, that is, God's law, whether in our actions, in our words, or even merely in our thoughts. And we must understand what the Bible says about sin and about our sin if we are to understand the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will easily be deceived by superficial remedies if we do not understand the nature of the ailment. A life-threatening disease cannot be treated by taking a paracetamol with the pretense that it's no great problem really. So it is with sin and salvation. And our purpose here is to show the true nature of sin. What sin is uh, from this basic, fundamental uh, part of the Word of God. Of course, all of the Word of God is profitable for us. But this passage teaches very fundamental things that we must get right if we are to understand the truth of God. What is sin? How does it work in our hearts? First of all then, let us consider the unbelief of sin. The unbelief of sin. Sin always entails loving and believing a lie. Sin always entails loving and believing a lie, preferring that which is false to that which is true, preferring darkness to light, and that is true of all sin. And as we look at the first human sin, we can see all the features of all sin, including our own. There are the lies about God, first of all. Sin prefers lies about God. There is the implication here in this first transgression that God is not fair, that God Is not fair. This is shown in two ways. In Eve's response to the serpent. First of all in verse 1. And he said. The serpent said unto the woman. Ye hath God said. Ye shall not eat. Of every tree. Of the garden. The suggestion here is. That there is some. Severe and unreasonable restriction being placed upon Adam and Eve. There's a complete uh, shift of focus. You see in chapter 2 verse 16 and 17 and the Lord God commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil Thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. There is a a complete transfer of emphasis from all the trees of the garden that can be eaten to the one that is forbidden. Hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree? Of the God, there is an implication here that their rights are being infringed as if we can have rights apart from God. Of course, there are no such thing there's no such thing as human rights apart from God giving those rights this The emphasis today on human rights is a godless emphasis. Because it doesn't acknowledge God as the authority and source of all rights amongst men. Apart from God, we do not have rights. But here, the suggestion of Satan is that there is an unwarranted and unreasonable restriction. And then, in verse 3, uh, the Verse 2, the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. You notice in verse 2 that Eve is less than fulsome in her expression Of the abundance of what God has given. Instead of every tree thou mayest freely eat. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Yes. There's a playing down. Of the abundance of the divine provision. But then in verse 3. She slips in this phrase. Ye shall not eat of it. Neither shall ye touch it lest ye die now the question of whether they should or shouldn't touch it is an interesting one but the point is that there is an exaggeration there is an emphasis on the prohibition the uh, original prohibition in uh, chapter 2 verse 17 is but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil Thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The prohibition is, don't eat of it. But there's this emphasis on restriction and this addition of the phrase, Neither shall ye touch it. In other words, Eve is already listening to the devil. If she hadn't begun to succumb, she had plenty of warnings. There were plenty of indications that she should not be listening to this serpent. What was an animal doing talking? She should have known, of course. And if she'd cleaved to the word of God, she would have known. But she liked what she was hearing. And to this day, don't people like to paint a caricature of biblical religion as a restrictive thing, as a killjoy way of life? Of course, people who've never known the Lord, they've never known his peace, his joy, they've never known the slightest degree of fellowship with the living and true God through Christ Jesus. To them it does seem a miserable way of life because they've never known it. They've been dead in trespasses and in sins all their lives. They've never known any joy or pleasure in God. But they represent biblical Christianity as an unreasonably restrictive thing. They prefer the lie. They feel it justifies Their rejection of the word of God. Do you do that? If you're not a Christian. Do you justify your unbelief? In that way. You say but. But this Christianity. It's so restrictive. But you see the only reason it seems restrictive to you. Is because you're a sinner. There's nothing in the word of God. That feels restrictive to a holy nature. It's because you're a sinner that you think that way. But then there is another accusation against God. And it is that God cannot be trusted. God cannot be trusted. You see in verse 1, Hath God said? Hath God said? Has he really said it? You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. It begins with a suggestion, a question. Even amongst men, sometimes people ask a question, don't they? And they know the answer, but the question is a way of hinting and nudging towards what they really want to say. And so it is that the the devil, by means of the serpent, is gradually moving towards the head-on denial of the truth of God. So in verse 4, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. So it begins with a question. Hath God said? Then a direct contradiction. Ye shall not surely die. And then there's the imputation. Of motive in verse 5 for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods knowing good and evil it begins with questioning what God has said then contradiction of what God has said then the imputation of a bad motive to what God has said. You see the progression here. The idea being suggested is that. God has an ulterior motive. In telling you not to eat of that tree. As if God's supremacy. Was an unsteady thing. You see how Satan is seeking to dislodge right thoughts of God. He wants to bring down God and uh, how Eve thinks of God. And so the suggestion is that he's not really almighty, that God is in fact rather unsure of himself and he's using this this ploy uh, to prevent Adam and Eve From realising their full potential. He's restricting them. Because he needs to restrict them. And so he attacks. The truthfulness of God. And the goodness of God. And then he attacks the wisdom of God. God doesn't know best. So in verse 5 again, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. You see how Satan is attacking the attributes of God, the character of God. He's not truthful, he's not good, he's not wise, he's not almighty. He has to safeguard his position. Each of the attributes of God is being attacked by Satan in this passage. And so here he's saying, don't take God's word for it. You need to know good and evil by experience, independently of God. There is the urge here to seek independent knowledge, to know Independently of God telling them. Young people like to know things independently instead of listening to those who are older and can tell them. It's a feature of youth, isn't it? It's not a good feature. But there is that desire to to find out for themselves instead of benefiting from the experience of those who've been through where they are. But how much worse, instead of listening to God to say, no, we'll find out our way. We'll not just take it from God. And so, man to this day is inclined to say, I can work it out. After all, I'm a perfectly rational human being. Well, are we? And we can work it out ourselves. So there is a refusal just to take God's word for it. And so Eve is beginning to listen to this. God isn't almighty. He's unsteady. God isn't good. The reason he tells us this restriction is not a good one. He's not wise. He doesn't know what's best for us. He doesn't want us to realize the potential that is ours. He can't be trusted. He doesn't tell us the truth. You know, all sin involves unbelief. All sin involves unbelief. There is no sin that does not entail unbelief. And that's true of our sins too. Every one of our sins entails the sin of unbelief. You say, I can't see that. Take Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but placeth his delight upon the law of the Lord, And meditates therein day and night. That tells us that blessedness is in following the Word of God. Every time we sin, we're saying that's not true. The Scripture says, Blessed is the man that trusteth in thee, blessed is the man. Who hath the God of Jacob for his help. Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord. And every time we sin. We're saying. That isn't true. We all want happiness. Every living soul wants happiness. The ungodly seek their happiness in vain. In the ways of sin. And the Christian has begun to learn. That God is the fountain of all blessedness. Because God himself is independently blessed forever. And that therefore all blessedness for man as a creature must be found in God. God is independently blessed. And only God can make men and women blessed. And we know that to be the the truth if we're Christians. But we know it so inconsistently. And every time we sin. We're saying God is not sufficient to make us blessed. And we need this sin in order to be blessed. And so every sin entails the sin of disbelief of the word of God. If we truly believed consistently, as we ought to do, that blessedness is in God, why would we ever seek blessedness in sin? So here we learn the truth about our sin, that it always entails disbelief of the truth of God. But then, secondly, the pride of sin. The pride of sin. Verse 5, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. The unbelief, was a desire to be independent of God in knowledge. And now it's being moved on to practice. Here, the serpent is saying that God isn't really God. He's not uniquely God. He's not supremely, only, and absolutely God. He's saying, you break, break away from this dependence on God and you'll be as gods. You'll be like God. You won't need God. You'll be able to know without God. You'll be able to set your own standards without God. You can be independent of God. The desire for independence of God is the essence of what sin is. It's the desire that God should no longer be acknowledged as God and that we should assume to ourselves rights, prerogatives that belong to God. And, of course, this masquerades as freedom. But it isn't. Because trying to take the place of God is utter wretchedness. True freedom is when we know our place before God. That we are the creature and he is the creator. Because that's the truth of the matter. You know, someone, even amongst men, someone trying to be what they're not capable of being is always a pitiable thing. But man trying to take the place of God is wretchedness. But the devil is the father of lies. And so he continues with this This ploy of imaginary freedom. And he denies that the consequences will be dreadful. Ye shall not surely die. It won't happen. But it did happen. And he keeps leading them on. And you see the outworking of this. What did happen? What were the immediate effects? Well, the immediate effects were ruinous and disastrous. You see the outworking of sin amongst men in this passage. If you turn to verse 12 and fo- to 14 where God has confronted Adam. Verse 12. And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me She gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. What have we got here? What we have here is the beginning of social disharmony. When God confronts Adam, he says, Well, the woman... She gave me. It's her fault. She gave me. Well, it was her fault. But it was his fault. He took it. He ate. He disobeyed the word of God. But then he doesn't just seek to pass the blame to the woman. He's really blaming God. The woman whom thou gavest to be with me. She gave me and I did eat. It's not my fault really, it's the woman. In fact, it's God's fault. Who gave me this woman? And the woman, the serpent, beguiled me and I did eat. It's not my fault either. It's the serpent. Well, the serpent of yes, the devil's wicked but she listened to him instead of cleaving to the word of God but there's this passing along the line then chapter 4 we have the first death and it was a murder Cain killed Abel it was a martyrdom, too. But the first death was a murder. The first physical death, the ending of someone's life in this world, was a murder. This is why... This is why life amongst men in this world is so fraught with wickedness and cruelty? Here's the answer. It's because we're sinners as by the offence of one. Many were made sinners. And yet our our leaders, they, they blame the environment, they blame conditions. Well, whatever circumstances whatever role circumstances may play in bringing sin to the fore in a particular manner, the problem is much bigger than circumstances. It's not environment, it's not social conditions, it's not not just a matter of social deprivation and if you throw money and resources at it, that'll solve it. Man is a sinner against Almighty God. That's what's wrong. If we say we have no sin. We make God a liar. And the truth is not in us. And as a nation. We are a lying nation. Pretending. Pretending that we have the potential within ourselves. Without God. Without his truth. Without the gospel. Without saving grace we have the ability to rectify our problems even in this world and it's utterly untrue it is patently obvious that it is not true but individually are you Denying this truth about yourself, about your sin, about your corruption, about your guilt before God? Are you denying God's standard of righteousness when you hear of the God of the Bible? as you do if you come here regularly and the perfection that he requires of men that purity that holiness in thought word and deed that we can break his commandments even in our thoughts as the lord jesus showed in the sermon on the mount as he shows that the, the commandments uh, apply to our thoughts that Malicious thought is a breach of the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill, even though we never do anything with our hands against another. That lust in the heart is adultery in the heart. Even though outwardly, literally, we do not engage in that sin. Yet the thought and the intent of the heart is sin in the sight of God. When you hear this is your response not oh i'm a sinner but oh how unreasonable that god should expect this nobody can be like that therefore god shouldn't require it but why shouldn't he why should god alter his standards because we're sinners and he won't he won't alter his standards any more than he will alter his own nature and character he will not deny himself but this is part of our arrogance it's part of our pride and we say oh i don't want to believe in a god like that he's too strict no god isn't too strict it's us We're corrupt. We're sinners. And so you quietly ignore God's law and set your own standards of decency in the place of God, in the place of His law. And you say, this is what I can manage and therefore it should do. But it doesn't. Why do we deny sin? Because we're sinners. We deny our sin because we are sinners. It's an expression of our sinfulness to deny our sinfulness. It's part of our arrogance that we begin with the assumption that our standards are right and we adjust in our minds our view of God to fit in. And then there is the denial of God's judgment on sin. The devil had said and Eve believed, wanted to believe that the threat of God would not prove true. That when God said, thou shalt surely die, he was lying. You shall not surely die. The death envisaged is a very embracing, inclusive concept. The miseries of this life Death itself, physical death, and the pains of hell forever. But as sinners, we want to deny that. That estrangement from God, that alienation from God, that lack of communion with God that came on account of sin, we regard it as normal. In one sense it is normal. It's universal by nature. We do not know God. But it's not normal in the sense of being normal to man by creation. It's normal. It's universal because of sin. But people regard it as normal. They've never known anything else. Physical death well we can't deny that happens no one can deny that that happens how many of us have known so many people who are no longer in this world but again people shrug their shoulders perhaps you do and you say well it's only natural if it's so natural why are men afraid of it The Bible calls it the king of terrors. Men, all their lifetime, through fear of death, are subject to bondage. It's universal, but it's not natural by creation. It's universal because guilt is universal, sin is universal. Death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. But then, there's the pains of hell forever. And even people who can't deny that this life is full of trouble, and who can't deny that it ends in death of the body, they can't see hell, so they feel freer to deny that it exists. But it does. wishful thinking, it won't happen. Are you pretending that you don't don't deserve to go to hell? That tells you that you're on the way to hell because no one escapes hell who doesn't think they deserve to go there. If you don't think you deserve to go to hell it is certain that you are on the way to hell because those who are on the way to heaven they've learned that they do deserve to go to hell and they're trusting the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver them. But if you don't think you deserve to go to hell then you're not trusting Christ and you're on the way to hell. You say, oh, I don't want to believe in this sort of God. But this is God as he really is. And you can pretend and make your own idea of God all your days. But when you leave this world, you will face this God this God of judgment, this holy God, this God who does punish sin and who only saves sinners through Jesus Christ, whose gospel you have despised. And that brings us thirdly, the one true gospel that addresses reality. The one true gospel That addresses reality. In verse 15 of Genesis 3, we read, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is speaking of the deliverance through the coming Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the first gospel promise. That of the seed of the woman, there would come one, that is, the Lord Jesus, God manifest in the flesh, who would crush the head of the serpent. The serpent would bruise his heel. He would suffer, but he would triumph to redeem his people. And it tells us of the conflict throughout history between the Redeemer and his people, and the devil, and his people. You have that in Revelation chapter 12, that vision of the dragon and the woman giving birth to the man-child. That's the Old Testament people of God, and among the Old Testament people of God, there appears the man-child, Christ, who is taken up to heaven And then the dragon continues to wage war upon the remnant of her seed. So the devil is opposed to the people of God in the Old Testament, opposed to the Saviour himself when he came, and opposed to the people of God thereafter, to the end of the world. But this is telling us that of the seed of the woman there would come a deliverer. Now that promise is narrowed down uh, later on, that this Saviour would come uh, out of the tents of Shem, that he would come of the seed of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that he would be the lion of the tribe of Judah, that he would be the root out of Jesse, the son of David, that he would be born in Bethlehem Ephrata, and it was so the Lord Jesus came as the saviour and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is at utter odds and utterly contradicts at all points this lie ye shall be as gods the gospel tells men and women who want to be as gods that you're not The true gospel that is biblical Christianity is that message which most consistently contradicts the pride of man and leaves nothing, not one loophole, not one crevice of room for human boasting. The true gospel tells man that he is a creature accountable to God. That tells, that contradicts the pride of man. Man wants to think that he's not accountable. That's why he invented the theory of evolution. So as to uh, give him space to think that he's just an advanced animal, there is no creator, there's no accountability. He can indulge his sins, and it makes no difference. Professor Dawkins, with his God delusion. Why is Professor Dawkins an atheist? Is it because he's got such a wonderful scientific mind? Not at all. There is one reason why Richard Dawkins is an atheist and that's because he wants to be an atheist and there's only one reason why he wants to be an atheist and that's because he's a sinner many people simply distort the idea of god you have that in romans 1 they make they invent a false god more they feel more comfortable with but some like dawkins They go further and they just say, there is no God. And that's why he makes his thoroughly unscientific assumptions. He says that everything came from nothing, with no independent divine cause, no eternal independent creator. There's nothing scientific about that. And he assumes irrationally that man is reasonable. What reason has he to assume that man is reasonable? None whatsoever. He assumes that man is not a sinner, that he's not corrupt, that he isn't biased, that he's neutral, objective, and that his reason is unimpaired by anything called sin he just assumes these things and then further down the line oh yes he puts on a fireworks display of scientific knowledge but it's all too late the ludicrous assumptions have already been made and it doesn't matter how much information he pours out the assumptions are nonsense nonsense He can try and cover them up and sinners willingly lap it up that when he gives them what they think is the information they need to believe this atheistic falsehood. But the assumptions are at the beginning before he ever becomes a scientist. He is an atheist because he wants to be. And for no other reason than that. And he wants to be because he's a sinner. And just as Adam and Eve scurried into the trees to escape God. So Dawkins wants to escape from the thought of God. So the true gospel says that man is a creature accountable to God. And the true gospel says that man is a sinner before this God and in need of salvation. This stands over against liberal pseudo-Christianity that man doesn't really need saving in the sense of deliverance from the wrath of a holy God. Liberal universalism more or less says that we're all right as we are but then the true gospel says that man cannot save himself this stands in contradiction to those religions like Islam and and, uh, Buddhism and Hinduism that in one form or another teach that man must save himself that he must do do it himself And flatter himself that he can save himself. But then the true gospel says that man cannot contribute to his own righteousness. That man cannot contribute to his own righteousness before God. So this stands in contrast, for example, to Roman Catholicism. Which teaches that salvation is partly of God and partly of man. that Christ merited or or that Christ's grace is mediated through the right use of the ordinances of the church and through a process of self-help and use of the church's ordinances, a process of purification takes place, continued in purgatory as necessary, and then the blessedness of heaven. But it's not true. Salvation is not. Partly of God and partly of man. We cannot contribute a penny to our standing before God. We must come to the Lord Jesus Christ without money and without price. Knowing that we have nothing to make us accepted in the sight of God. And calling upon God, God be merciful to me a sinner. And seeking acceptance through Jesus Christ and his merits, his righteousness, his uh, fulfilling God's law perfectly in every respect. And his bearing the guilt of the transgression of that law in his sufferings and death and the shedding of his own blood. Where in, and, and his bearing of the vengeance of God whereby he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That it is only through relying upon Christ and him crucified. That we can be accepted in the sight of God. That we must cast overboard. Our own hopes of righteousness in ourselves. That we must count all things but loss. For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. But then also. The true gospel teaches that man is dependent upon God even for the willingness to depend upon Jesus Christ. You see, Arminianism is a, uh, is, a, is an error that teaches that Christ died trying to save sinners, bearing the wrath of God, but that the outcome is dependent on a supposed independent free will in man. But it isn't. Christ did not die simply to make salvation a possibility for all. Christ died to actually ensure the salvation of those chosen by God before the foundation of the world. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. And that's why in the scriptures the results of the preaching of the gospel are attributed to the power of God. In Romans 6, 17, the apostle Paul says, but God be thanked. That you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine delivered to you. God be thanked. He doesn't say congratulations on making such a wise use of your natural powers. He says God be thanked. God had changed their hearts. Others in Rome heard the same gospel. And went on in their sins. But these people believed. Why did they believe? Because God Changed their hearts. As we read in the book of Acts. The Lord added to the church. Such as should be saved. We read of Lydia. Whose heart the Lord opened. So that she received the things which were spoken. We read of Paul preaching in Antioch in Pisidia in Acts 13. And as many as were ordained unto life believed. So that even the willingness to believe. And to depend on Christ. Can only come from God. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest lest any man should boast. What do we see here then? We see that the biblical gospel closes out all possibility of human boasting. And attributes salvation to God. the true gospel, as man tries and goes on trying to say that he can be as God's, the true gospel says, no, you can't. You're not the God of your own sal- uh, of salvation, and those who are saved are saved by God and only God through Christ Jesus, that salvation is in its entirety is of God. And that's the difference between the true religion and all else. Biblical Christianity says that man does need salvation and that salvation is all of God. False Christianity and other religions either say that man doesn't need saving or that he can do it in part or in whole himself. Whereas biblical Christianity says that man does need salvation and those out of mankind who are saved are saved entirely by God and his free grace alone. And that's the difference between biblical Christianity and all other religion. All other religion is false And attributes something to man. All other religion. Is in some degree or measure or way. Conceding to this wicked lie. Ye shall be as gods. And the church of Jesus Christ. Is the place. Where. The lie. Of pretending. And seeking to be as gods should be consistently exposed. In other words, the people of God should consistently, in their thought, speech and behaviour, as an organised church and in their daily lives, be saying, God is God and we are not. So in the church We don't say we'll do our own thing. We say, what is the church meant to do? It's meant to worship the Lord. How shall we decide how we are to worship God? Well, we must listen to what God says in his word. We'll not try to worship God in a manner of our devising, but as God tells us, how should the church be governed? Well, we must listen to God. How should the church be ordered? What discipline should there be in the church? We look to God. In other words, at all points, we are to acknowledge our dependence upon God. But not only there, but in the home. The relationship between husband and wife. Are we going to listen to the modern humanists, the secularists, or are we going to listen to God? the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church husbands are to love their wives wives are to submit themselves to their own husbands because we acknowledge that only God can tell us the truth the upbringing of our children who are you you, you parents who are you listening to When you're working out what to do with your children, how to bring up your children, are you listening to the word of God? Because only God can tell us the right way to bring up our children. Or are you listening to the latest experts telling you what psychological damage and emotional scars you leave on your children if you insist on teaching them biblical Christianity? No. We must listen to God. God does know best. God is good. God is wise. And every, everything he tells us is good for us if it's received into the heart by his grace. The church is evangelism. How are we going to do it? Are we going to treat God as if he doesn't really know the best way that his gospel should be made known to men? Are we going to invent our own schemes and and claim that we have some new bright idea as to how to make the gospel known in a, in society and so? On? No, we're going to say God knows. We're not God. God knows. He knows how it should be done, and He does. And He has appointed the means, and He uses those means, and He blesses those means when they are faithfully <coughs> engaged in. But above all, we must heed God for eternity. If God's word is to be heeded and not the devil in this life, as to the things of this life, how much more for the world to come? The Christian's hope rests upon this truth that God is the God that cannot lie. Who are you listening to as to what will happen to you after death? For the word of God says it is appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment. That's the truth of the matter. And only if your hope and confidence is in the Lord Jesus Christ can you hope that death will bring blessedness and glory in heaven with Christ. Blessed are that people who by his grace have been enabled to no longer listen to the lies of the wicked one and the corruption of our own hearts, but by the renewing of the Holy Ghost have heard the voice of the Son of God and believed on him to life everlasting so that they can say like the apostle, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day.